Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. eight billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, just as fashion, as we love to say on the show, is about more than pretty clothes, basketball is more than just a game. Basketball players are not only stellar, world-renowned athletes, they are role models, social activists, and for our intents and purposes today, of course, celebrated style icons. And as our guest today, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Mitchell S. Jackson illustrates in his new book, Fly the Big Book of Basketball Fashion, none of these things that I just mentioned are mutually exclusive, but are in fact intimately intertwined. Equal parts photo-rich lookbook and cultural commentary, this book not only celebrates the intersection of high fashion and basketball, but also reveals how, quote, some of the impactful moments of the NBA's 75-year history have little to do with the game itself, exploring how the evolution of basketball fashion is a mirror of American culture. Deftly weaving the narratives of race, socioeconomic status, masculinity, and fame, end quote. Mitchell, we are so pleased to welcome you to Dressed. Mitchell, welcome to Dressed. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And first, I just want to thank you for this book because my husband and brother get into these deep conversations about basketball, and I always feel super left out, but you gave me a lot to talk to them about. (laughs) Great, great. I'm glad I could be of assistance. (laughs) I'm like, look at this fabulous new book. Do you know this player, et cetera? You know, so it was really fun, actually. Yeah. And I might not be a, you know, basketball fan per se. I mean, I'm one by proxy because LeBron is a really big deal in my household. But I do know a lot about fashion and fashion history and the influence of athletes and basketball players in particular on fashion and wider American culture cannot be overstated. It's seismic. And it's so clearly evidenced in this book. But before we dive into it further, I am just a little curious. I want to learn a little bit more about you. When were you first aware of the power and influence 
of the clothing of basketball players. I'm just curious if maybe this extends back further than writing, just writing this book. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a kid, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, so I'll say that there. Um, But as a kid, you were, I played basketball too. So, so I've, I've been a part of the wider basketball world since, you know, youth basketball days. And you know, as a kid about Walt Clyde Frazier, you've probably seen a picture of him or you had a poster of the Iceman with his arms out, or you had a poster of Jordan, you know, skywalking, or you had some Jordans, which, you know, I'm from the land of Nike. So I had the first Air Jordans when the Air Jordans came out. And so I was aware of those aspects of fashion, but I think in terms of really paying attention to what the players were wearing and considering it in a, in just the realm of fashion that took probably years. I mean, probably like 2014, some, something, sometime around like a Mary Stoudemire uh, and being in, in New York and, and seeing that now NBA players were at the Met Gala and all that stuff. So it took a long time for me to really like, Oh no, this is a serious, like this, they're not just playing. They're not just getting dressed. It took a very long time for me to recognize they were part of the fashion world and not just, people who were dressing to go to a game. Yeah. And that is something that you talk about. And we'll talk about um, as we kind of go through the timeline of your book. I also just wanted to ask you a question that I'm sure you get a lot. As our listeners will know from the introduction, you are a distinguished multi-award winning Pulitzer Prize winning author of some heavy hitting topics. So what inspired this book on basketball fashion? Well, loving fashion myself since I was a kid. So that's that's probably the, the long answer. Playing basketball and being around basketball culture for so long, I had friends that went to the NBA. And I actually, I was I was joking, but I, I, I call myself one of the very first NBA stylists because I had a friend who was in the league mid-2000s. And he was like, man, he knows and he knew that I love fashion. He was like, man, I'm going to send you some money. And I want you to just pick my summer wardrobe or buy my summer. And I did. He sent me like $8,000 and I just wow. went and got them outfits and sent them to him. Yeah, years ago. So so I've been around it. And then in the writing world, my very first piece of published um, journalism was on basketball. A story called Almost Famous about some uh, college basketball players who didn't make it. And so I've been writing about it for a very long time. And I will also say that for me, when they brought the idea to me, my editor at Hearst is the one that brought the idea or the project to me. I immediately was like, well, it has to be more than just this, right? So so the the research part of me was like, what? why is this significant? Which is kind of the same work that I do, say, in the Ahmaud Arbery piece, right? Like, yes, yeah, about this, but then what is this in context? So I'm really interested in the context of the thing. Yeah. And you write that the story of NBA fashion over the past 75 years is also in many ways the story of America, right? So it's a lens into the culture. And you talk about how it holds a mirror to American culture, but also how it defines it. So let's dive into your fantastic book. So (laughs) in the book, you explore the relationship between basketball, fashion, and American culture across six eras or periodizations beginning Mm -hmm. in 1946, which is the year that the NBA or the National Basketball Association was born in the U.S. 
So for those of us who don't know, can you give us a brief history of the NBA and then talk about what players were wearing during this period that you label the conformists, which is interesting because that's not something you would associate with basketball players today. I think, you know, we're talking mid to late 1940s, which also means post-World War II, which also means pre-civil rights movement. And I think those two things are most defining of how I saw the the inception of the NBA. It started off as a other leagues that were kind of floundering or not getting the people that they wanted. Really, it started because the guy who owned the Boston the Garden wanted to get some people in there. <laughs> so 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 then they they had these other kind of smaller leagues that when decided to get together, right? So that's why it's the the National Basketball Association, right? These association of different leagues and because it was pre-civil rights, it started off as a white league. And I think those, and you probably know more about this than me, like the conservation mandates of World War II, I think they had a, an effect on how people thought about fashion in those days, uh, what they were going to reuse. You know, you weren't going to have seven, eight. I mean, it was you could not have you know, multiple suits, lots of fabric and multiple shoes. So I think that was also very definitive of the league. And then uh, this idea on the, on, on the, on the black players, which, you know, the league starts, I think 1949, but then the first black players come along the next year, right? 1950, we get three um, black players. I had an event the other day. I joked about this. I've, you've never heard, I've never heard, and, and no one has proven me wrong on this yet. A white person being, um, called a credit to their race. Right. But on the flip side of that, in those days, you could be seen as a credit to the black race, right? Which also meant you were representative of an entire group of people. On the flip side of that is you could be a discredit to your race, right? And so I think that pressure for people who were prominent in black in that era was very, very important to think about the way that might restrict what you wore or shape what you wore. Yeah, intimately connected to what you wore. And we've, our listeners might remember, we have done episodes in the past on respectability politics. Um, and mm-hmm. before and during the civil rights movement, Dr. Tanisha Ford came on and talked to us about liberated threads and in the context of the mm-hmm. same ideas. What you wore was intimately con- connected to your identity and your representation, right? Um, That didn't necessarily apply to the white players the same way it did to the black players. And so you're talking about suits. And I like that you say it too. You say at best, they're dapper in the quotidian sense. So yeah, they still had style, but it's still very much within this, you know, the social norms of the period, which was very, still very much formalized. This, of course, all changes in the 1960s, which is the next era (laughs) of your book, 1964 to 1980, an era during which you write, quote, black players were free to be flamboyant, to break norms, to shoe the white man's uniform. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, what happens when you think you got your civil rights and, you know, you ain't got to go drink at the the black water fountain anymore. And I think, you know, to me, it's the most interesting era of NBA fashion because it was such a stark difference from the era that came before it. Um, so now, and, and and also the hair became so prominent, right? So we got big afros. Um, we got guys now wearing jewelry. You know, you see early pictures of uh, Will Chamberlain. He has a suit on. You see late pictures of Will in the 70s. He got a 
Kirk V-neck down to his navel. And, you know, like clearly these guys felt like they were going to express themselves in a way that they, they had more comfort in a way they were going to express themselves, more latitude. And I also feel like it coincides with the league becoming a little bit more popular and more Black, right? So 1976, we get the ABA and NBA merging. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of components that made that like the kind of watershed moment uh, for the NBA. Yeah, I was going to say, I think this is my favorite chapter of the book, just because it is such a stark difference. And it's so fun. And also, there's that picture of Willis Reed and Dick Barnett from 1971. And they're in the sporting yeah. store. And that woman has has, you know, the fabulous she has like, I think maybe as a cheerleading uniform, and she feels yeah. very much part of the period. But though both of those guys and specifically Dick looks like he stepped out of a 2023 fashion magazine. Like I had to look yeah. at that twice because he looks <laughs> I mean, he really does. It looks yeah, like it's fly. very contemporary. Yeah. So you must have had a blast going through archives. I mean, how did you pick which images to include. Yeah. So I went, I started with doing research just on the league in general and, you know, uh, figuring out what players were prominent in the 50s and the 60s. I mean, once we got to the 70s, like I, I had names, but when you, prior to that, I didn't know. So I would have to first find the players and then I would have to go through as many archival photos as I could of them to actually, because it, it's not just that they were stars. It's like, no, you were stars and you actually had style. So, right. uh, it you know, it's hard to find a Willis Reed, you know, photo of him in street clothes. So I, I, I went through a lot of that. And then, you know, obviously doing the books, sometimes you can get the right, sometimes you can't. And I think there are two moments which stick out to me. And I think, yeah, it's in that flamboyance era. There's a picture of Pete Merritt and he has on like a suit with a butterfly collar. He has a diamond pendant gold chain and some big glasses. And Mr. Pete, I used to watch his, he was like one of the best, still one of the best ball handler guards ever. And I used to, he used to make tapes, like training tapes. And so he was very, a very flashy player. And I had another photo. I can't remember who it was, uh, but we could not get the rights to it. So then I was like, oh, well, why don't y'all go look for some photos of Pistol Pete? And then that photo came across and I said, oh, this is it because to me, it was style because that image of Pistol Pete matched up with the player that he was and who I thought him to be in the world. I was like, oh, this. And now it's probably my my favorite photo in the whole book. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Another image that I really love is from that section is of Walt Clyde Frazier in the 70s. And he and I've yeah. seen this image before. And he's in that black leather cape. It's like stud detail and a black hat. And something I learned from this book that I did not know before was that Frazier was the first player to have his own basketball shoe, which I had no idea. You associate it so much with Michael Jordan, but the Puma yeah. Clyde is from 1973, and that's 12 years before Michael Jordan's famous Air Jordan 1s of 85, which segues me into my next question and the next era of basketball fashion as defined by your book which is 1981 to 1998, an era aptly titled Just Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. The ascendance of Michael Jordan. Like for me, that's 81. So we're also talking about Larry Bird and uh, Magic Johnson who come in in 79 and really resurrect the league. It's faltering. They had a drug problem. They're the first league to have a drug policy. Um, And then 
Magic and Bird come and they resurrect the league by their rivalry, you know, the Celtics and the Lakers. They also get their own sneakers, weapons, Converse weapons, which never really catch on that big. So they are the context for Michael Jordan, who comes into a league that is ascending. And then Jordan takes it to, I would argue, it's apex, that he's the most popular person in the world while he's playing in the NBA. And I don't know if the NBA has had before or since the most popular person in the world. And it shows, too, and the fact that it's intimately connected to multi-billion dollar shoe that he yeah. becomes tied to, that's emblematic, right, of just how successful a player he was. And to, I mean, that legacy lasts until today, right? He's right. still yeah. one of the most, if not the most famous basketball player of all time. And now the richest argue. athlete yeah. of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more. And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing. It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, did you know that you can save on everything from fashion to beauty, home decor to groceries, even kids' school supplies with Rakuten? Rakuten is a shopping platform that partners with over 3,500 stores across every category. Beauty, clothing, electronics, home, department stores, pets, you name it. You're already shopping at your favorite stores, so why not be saving while doing it? It really is a no-brainer. How does it work, you ask? Well, stores pay Rakuten a commission for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the commission with its members. You get paid via a check or PayPal quarterly. Membership is free, and it's easy to sign up. So join the 17 million members who have already saved at their favorite brands. Start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app to start saving today. Your cash back really adds up. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.com. Menopause, perimenopause, these can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it really shows. And get this. 
Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it. But it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Something I also like in this section is that you highlight his teammate, Dennis Rodman, which of course you cannot do a basketball fashion book without talking about Dennis, who is equally significant as a style icon from this period, but in a different way, right? Yeah. Because he's really pushing the gender boundaries of clothing in a way you had just never seen other basketball players or other players across any sport, I would argue, doing at this point. He's wearing makeup, he's nail polish, he's showing his midriff. Can you talk a little bit about Dennis? Yeah, he's basically like a transplant from 2023. Somebody sent him yes. back from the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Rodman, it's, it's interesting to watch his evolution. Like if you see pictures of early Rodman, you know, he came from a small college. He thought he was ugly it, by his own admission. Um, right. He had short hair, you know, he wasn't. And then he, he grows into himself as a player. He starts to become a defensive specialist and a rebounder. And, and really leans into that. And then he plays on the bad boys, right? Which is a team that takes on a persona of being tough in the Detroit working class and they're beating up Michael Jordan. And so those players on the team are starting to define themselves individually. And I think Rodman, he's smart enough to recognize that there is cachet and value in making a way that individualizing yourself and then we see that grow when he goes to the other teams. And by the time he gets to the Bulls, you know, he's playing with the most famous person in the world. But then he also starts to or, or continues to define himself. Right. That's when he's doing all the cra- like you've seen the the last dance. You know, they say Rodman went off to Las Vegas during the playoffs and Phil Jackson just let him go to gamble and do you know, all this. And he's, he's starting to talk to Madonna. You know, he's, so I feel like he's taking those cues from what worked prior and now he has to scale them up because the attention the counter attention or the uh, the other attention is so huge on these other figures and then he just he keeps going I think it's also interesting about Rodman I don't think Rodman ever thought he was fashionable I think he was doing things to shock us which is different from these young men today or young players today who I think actually when they're painting their nails or Dying, they actually think that's an element of fashion. So it's a for me, Robin was a shocking us, and that shock has now transmuted into no, this is just a regular part of fashion now. Yeah, which is what happens with a lot of fashion icons, right? I mean, he really laid the foundation, and not just basketball players, but for men in general to kind of like push back against these boundaries of what men can wear. So I think he's really ahead of his time. And as you said, now today, it's just kind of normal. But it it was because of players like Rodman who or because of Rodman. I mean, I feel like he was alone in this at this time. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he definitely was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So moving into the next section, we're going to talk about the impact of hip hop culture, which cannot be overstated. Again, incredibly huge impact from the 1970s when it originated and obviously continues into today. And basketball players, just like the fashion industry, were not immune to this impact, of course. And in fact, all of these things, fashion, hip hop, 
and basketball all coalesced on and off the court during this next era in your book, which is 1999 to 2009. So can you tell us about this section, which is called the Iverson effect? I think the most important point about that era is that Alan Iverson, is, who is the same age as me, is basically the same age as hip hop. So that era was the first generation of players who actually their whole lives were hip hop. Um, so, so you know, Jordan born in the 60s, I think, maybe late 50s, but I think it's like early 60s for Michael Jordan, right? So those guys, they had like childhood into maybe in, a little bit into adolescence with no hip hop, but Iverson is born into hip hop. And that generation of players is the ones that change the league, right? That they're different than their predecessors. And it's also, you know, hip hop was born as a counterculture movement. It has, it's to me, always kind of valued antagonistic to pa- being, being antagonistic to power, breaking rules. Uh, you know, there's a moment where it was about, you know, whether or not you hustled or were in some kind of, uh, underground economy. And so all of those things I think are like shaking up David Stern uh, and the people who are, you know, they, they're watching Jordan who has taken them to heights. Right. And you got these new young guys who are all born into hip hop, like changing things around in a way that is making him nervous, but then also, you know, probably scaring off advertisers and stuff. And then we get the malice in the palace, which is, I don't think it's like the tipping point, right? It's like where the world can see what these quote hip hop guys, which is also leaning into the stereotypes too, right? So I don't think we can look at Malice in the Palace without like, I don't know if you remember like Willie Horton and uh, Bill Clinton, right? So Clinton and them, and they had the the super predator in the, in the 19, early 1990s. And they had the Willie Horton guy who they said was, you know, going to come and murder your kids and all of that stuff, which is not unlike in the you know early 19th century or 20th century when they you know when cocaine was being uh, was legal and then you know they made it illegal because they were saying black men were getting high and raping people and all. so like there's always been this kind of gaslighting uh, that had to do with black men and danger and what they would or wouldn't do especially to white women but to the to the culture at large and so I think that if we you know, move it forward. We're really talking about that kind of backdrop for history and, and, and the malice in the palace and what these guys in hip hop will do and won't do to these people in middle America that are watching. Right. And that played out in what he was wearing, right? That directly like hip hop fashion translated on the court through Iverson. Can you talk about how what that looked like? I mean, he wore headbands. He wore braids, which, you know, black people's hairstyles has always been a point of contention, right? The Afro was a symbol of black power. The braids are, you know, hearkening back to your Africanness. Um, so anything save the kind of haircut that I'm wearing right now is 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 an issue to contend with. And then Iverson wore the really baggy clothes, which, you know, they didn't like that. The sagging, you know, I mean my grandfather used to be like, boy, pull your pants up when you leave the house. And, you know, if you look back at SAG and how it came out of the prison system, right? So there's all these things that are markers of hallmarks of hip hop, which old white men don't understand or want to control. And uh, Iverson was also, I think, Iverson's background as a person who, you know, as a high schooler got into a brawl and then 
was incarcerated and was pardoned by the uh, the governor and then went to the, you know, played for the most prominent black coach, maybe in the history of college basketball. So all of those things made Iverson a myth before he ever stepped foot on an NBA court. And so unlike the other guys around his air, they were not mythologized in the same way that Iverson was, which gave him a greater impact. Whether or not they could play as well as him didn't matter because they were not mythological in the way that those other guys were. Wow, that's super fascinating. And then because of that, much more scrutinized, right, than a lot of other players. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And so the Malice of the Palace happened in 2004, and then after that, you have dress codes, right, that are instituted. So we're back to that conformity, uniformity, control aspect, right, of of trying to control what players wear, which did not last. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, they protested, as one does. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, it lasted, I think it probably lasted like five, four or five years before they really figured it out. But but I, I think... And I don't, I don't know how you define the, the difference between fashion and style, but I think of, I think to be fashionable, you need information about what the trends are, what brands to wear and not wear. I mean, you still have to understand, I guess, you know, what looks good on you and what doesn't. But I feel like style is different. And I think when I think of style, I think of it as like aesthetic choices, but they're principle, like you know that I do this because of this. I won't do this because of this. And so I think the dress code had the effect of giving the players borders by which they had to kind of operate and they became more creative inside of those strictures. Um, and so I think as, as, as time evolved, they became more and more creative because they were in, they couldn't do anything but the box made them have to do more creative things inside of that. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I agree with you. I think, and there's lots of, I think the definition of fashion can be subjective, but I think mm. style transcends fashion and fashion yeah. trends, right? It's very personal too, to a person versus people have the same style. It can be very personal. And especially when you're looking at basketball players who, as you kind of talk about, start to really develop their own personal style on and off the court. And so despite these dress codes being instituted, and this is the era from 2010 to 2015, which saw the NBA become, quote, and this is a quote from your book, the most fashionable pro sports league. And this is where players began competing sartorially off the court. What sparked this new era of sartorial competition? And this is kind of coming full circle because we talked a little bit about this at the beginning. Yeah, Instagram. (laughs) uh the the ability i think okay we go back i mean i I guess yeah i talk about this in the book like there's the decision with lebron and uh the decision is aired i think it's on espn it's a whole special everybody's mad you know they burning lebron jerseys in cleveland after the decision but what it also did is it shifted power away from the institution to the player and I think even I don't know whether or not Bron recognized. I mean, I'm sure he recognized it for himself, but like in the way that it was when we say like a seismic shift, right? Where now we have this summer, you know, James Harden publicly called out his GM, called him a liar, went to China, was defaming his the, the Sixers GM. I'll never play for you, like that kind of stuff. That's a that's a player that feels empowered, emboldened. Right. 
right? Um, and that to me came out of LeBron in that shift. Can you just tell us what, what you're talking about, the decision? So the decision was LeBron was in Cleveland. You know, he's a born a Cleveland kid. He had been playing for, drafted by the Cavaliers. Had been playing for them. And then he's a free agent and he decides, everybody's speculating, where's LeBron going to go? It's the biggest question of the summer. And then he waits and has a special to announce where he's going and famously says, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Um, and so a lot of people gave him flat for, you know, turning it into a spectacle for leaving his hometown team. I mean, the, 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 the owner of the Cavaliers wrote some or said some crazy stuff about him. People were literally burning LeBron jerseys in Cleveland streets. Like it was a really big moment. Um, and I, as I say, like he shifted the power away from like, no, not just the G. Like if you look at the, 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 the last dance, which is probably two or three years ago, four years ago now. Docu-series on HBO, right? Yes, docu-series on HBO about Jordan Bulls. And there's a, a, one of the episodes is about Jerry Krause, who was the GM of the Bulls and how much power he had over that team. And he was actually really antagonistic to Jordan and Scotty. Like he famously wouldn't give Scotty a great contract. So that's the organization has the power, right? And we're talking about Jordan, who... This may be getting into the woods, but Jordan was long underpaid as a basketball player to the point where they gave him a balloon $36 million payment at the end of his career because he never got the contract that he should and the NBA was on his back. So if you go from looking at the most famous person in the world is underpaid in his sport to now LeBron has a special on ESPN announcing where he's going, taking the power away from GMs, that's huge. That's huge. And I think if you if you couple that with the inception of Instagram and, and social media and now the players can display themselves and also have a metric. Right. It's not just that you can take a picture and put it up and say, no, you know, eight million people like this photo. So I think that that really created what we what we have now, like the powers usurped from the organization given to the individuals. And now these individuals can it exert that power in a, in a way that uh, that makes them feel create allows them to be creative and then also gives them more power right because now brands are coming to them and you know so I think those two things together is like wow here we are and you make the a comparison to the beats headphones and yeah, yeah, how yeah. basically corporations realize how much money these players can make them right and yeah. so um, once you make that connection, and especially like in high fashion, and I don't know if this is something you agree with, but it seems like there's a lot more moving forward after like 2012, etc. The intersection of high fashion, so like high fashion, luxury fashion designers and basketball players specifically starts to really ramp up and you start seeing them on the gala, Met Gala carpet. Can you talk about, for instance, LeBron James outfitting his entire team in Tom Brown suits? Yeah, yes, yeah, huge. Well, I think we got to go back to a Mary Stoudemire who calls it, has called himself Mr. Fashion and I believe was the very first NBA player at the Met Gala. Him and his wife was actually very stylish too, or ex-wife now, Alexis. So yeah, so once you start sitting next to Anna Wintour, you are official, bona fide fashion world 
you know, royalty. Elite. <laughs> yes. Yeah, elite. royalty. <laughs> Shortly, you know, Carmelo does it. You know, Westbrook does it. So, so, so for me, that if we just had that one as a metric, that shows because where were the football players? Where were the baseball players? You know, so like we're seeing that the the NBA is a forerunner in this. And it's not happening by happenstance. Like I did uh, an event with this woman named Tammy Brooke, who was like an architect behind the scenes, right? Uh, Introducing these people, but they are smart enough to recognize it's important. They're spending the money to go to Paris Fashion Week and Milan Fashion Week and New York Fashion Week. So they're, they're, they recognize it and then they have the resources to do it. And then they're also cool. And I will say, I have a kind of philosophical argument about why basketball players and to me it's because it's the sport that involves the most flying and I think that there's something really beautiful about men who are constantly flying uh and and if you know if you go back to black culture there's always these like African fables about the flying Africans we think about when when they were coming over in the transatlantic slave trade like they would always say you know they would jump out of the boats and be flying off. Like there's just so much embedded in this idea of flying. And you see Michael Jordan going from the free throw line or even before that, Dr. J and the, the style of that. To me, there's not another sport that does that, right? Like football is on the ground and it's it's brutal. You know, tennis, you, you're on the ground. You know, baseball, every once in a while, somebody hit a home run and they jump up and grab. But like <laughs> it's earth, all these sports are earthbound and right. basketball is flight. Oh, that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. So before I let you go, what are you hoping people will take away from this book? The takeaway that you had that, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's a photo book, right? So yes, enjoy the photos. But for me, I consider myself to be an artist. And so I want the language of the book to stand up to the photos to whatever photo you think is most beautiful. I want the language to stand up to that. And I also want people to recognize that fashion is serious and that it's a representation of politics and culture and, you know, things that are really, that we think are serious. Like fashion is an element of that and not just what you're wearing, you know, (laughs) on the red carpet. Well, our audience agrees with you. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yes, exactly. But we're always looking for more evidence of this. And this is just another yeah. example of how central clothing is to not just our personal identity, but our the culture within which we live. So thank you so much for being here. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you for having me. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us and sharing so many wonderful insights into your book. Listeners, you can get your hands on your very own copy of Fly, the big book of basketball fashion through the Dressed Bookshelf, bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dressed. Until next time, dress listeners, may you consider your favorite sport or sportswear next time you get dressed. Our bookshelf is also where you can find an array of our favorite featured fashion history titles, including those, of course, featured on the podcast. You will also find a link to our bookshelf in our show notes, as well as the link to sign up for the ad-free version of the show, which is just $3 a month. And of course, we love hearing from you. So please email us at hello at dressedhistory.com. Dressedhistory.com is, of course, our website where you can find information on our upcoming fashion history tours, our upcoming fashion history classes, and anything else we have up our sleeves. 
You can also DM us, of course, on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you want to find the Instagram content specifically connected to this episode, check out the hashtag dressed 333. That's dressed and the numbers 333. As always, thank you for your continued support. More dressed coming your way on Tuesday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.